Well, some of you may have known what it's like to have had a paper route. Uh, I've never had one, but the people that I've talked to talk about getting up early. Uh, well before the sun comes up and that there are certain things you would have to account for that maybe on a rainy day that you would have to uh, uh, be prepared to spend some extra time uh, stuffing those newspapers down in plastic bags and uh, I remember where we used to live uh, we had uh, young men and young women who would deliver our newspaper uh, every evening. It was an afternoon paper and uh, it was called the Daily Times. And so sometimes, if you ever had a paper delivered to your to your front door, sometimes they get it real close to the front door. Sometimes it's stuck somewhere out there in the hedges or something like that. But but then, then they would come along every once in a while and, and there'd be a knock at your door. And then there the paper uh, paper boy or paper girl would be, and then they would they would be collecting. It's you know it's time to pay your bill, and if you were aware, you knew that you should always tip the people who had the paper route. And so I look back at a time when I was a young adult, and I was oblivious to the fact that you're supposed to tip the the people. So uh, I know none of them are here this morning, but out there somewhere in the wide wide world there are some some paper route people that I stiffed once upon a time so uh, I hope they will find it in their heart to forgive me but before the time of papers being delivered there were what was called newsboys and there were these were usually boys that would kind of hawk the papers. They would they would stand there with their stack of papers under their arm, as pictured here. A lot of times you would see them, and they would have a stack of papers, and they would just have a couple. And then as people would walk by, and they might even be, but might even be, you know, shouting out some of the headlines. Hey, read all about it. You know, and they would share one of the headlines of what's going on in that day's paper. And then people walking by, and you especially saw this in large cities, people going by then would hand them whatever the paper cost, a dime, a quarter. Now papers are, I guess, about 50 cents to a dollar for each edition. But then they, they, would, uh, they would sell the papers like that. And this one gentleman whose book I've been reading lately tells a story of standing back and observing. He was waiting on someone on a street corner and not far from him was one of these newsboys. And he said that there was a man dressed very nice, had on a tweed jacket, the kind with the elbow patches, and he's standing there and uh, he... he Notice that when the when the newsboy kind of stepped away from his stack because he was selling a couple of papers over in this direction, then the man in the nice jacket reached down and grabbed a paper out of his stack and walked off. And he thought, surely a guy that was dressed that nice could afford the ten cents that that newspaper cost. What would make him do such a thing? And then he also tells a story of being in a cafeteria. 
and there were a couple of men ahead of him in line and as they're getting their trays and starting through the line he could tell that they were discussing business deals and he said these guys were not discussing small deals they were discussing sizable business deals and then he said that as they would ask the servers behind the counter, you know, to what they wanted, tell them what they wanted on their plate, and he noticed then as you know, you get handed your plate and you put it on your tray, and you're getting the other stuff that you need, and he noticed that one of them reaches for a pat of butter. He said the pats of butter were five cents a piece when you got to the cashier. But one of these gentlemen discussing these big business deals slides that pat of butter underneath the plate where the cashier couldn't see it, wouldn't know to ring it up. And there again, it begs the question it's just a nickel. What would cause somebody? to do such a thing. And so we read about a situation in 2 Kings chapter 5. We're introduced to a man named Naaman. In 2 Kings 5 verse 1 we, we read, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. And so right here we're introduced to this character in Scripture. We're told that he was a great man in the sight of his master and that, uh, that he was a valiant soldier. But... Then we're told at the end of verse 1 here, but he had leprosy. Now in his household was a servant girl, someone who had been captured in one of the battles that had been waged by Naaman. And she was saying, if only my master would go to the prophet, the man of God, and then he could be healed of his leprosy. And so Naaman is encouraged. Hey, why don't you go talk to this prophet and why don't you go see if he can heal you of your skin disease? So Naaman then goes to the king of Syria and says, hey, I've been told that there is a prophet in a place called Samaria. And so I would like to go and talk to him and see if he can heal me of my skin disease. And so the king of Syria says, you know, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I will send a letter to the king of Israel and I will let him know what it is that you're seeking. So then Naaman takes off and he presents himself to the king of Israel and he presents a letter. And so the messenger takes the letter to the king and so the king reads this letter from the king of Syria. And the king of Israel then tears his robes, which in the ancient world that was a way of exhibiting uh, a, a way of exhibiting grief over something. 
It's like the king of Israel is like, you've got to be kidding me. What, 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 is he, what is he trying to do? Pick a fight? I'm no healer. I don't have the power to heal. And so in the eyes of the king of Israel, he's thinking, good grief. What does he want me to do? And so he feels like he's being set up. Like the king of Syria is trying to pick a fight with him. That, hey, I'm going to present to you one of my commanders, someone who I highly favor, and I'm going to see if you can heal him. And the king of Israel is probably thinking, well, if I can't heal him. And then he goes back and he's still got his skin disease. And then Israel is going to be waged war upon by Syria. But then Elisha gets word of this. And Elisha the prophet says, why are you so distressed? Send him to me. Elisha knows the power of God, doesn't he? And so he tells, he sends word to Naaman that, hey, if you'll just go and wash in the Jordan River seven times. And as a matter of fact, he doesn't even get to talk, Naaman doesn't even get to talk to the prophet. He sends word by messenger. So Naaman goes away and he's pretty angry. Because he's thinking, man, we've got rivers back where I come from that are better rivers than what the Jordan is. The Jordan can be kind of a muddy river. And so I don't want to wash in that mud puddle. I'm going to go back, and if I'm going to wash seven times, I'm going to do it back at home. Why did I waste my time coming all the way over here? But then some of the servants say, you know, if the prophet had asked you some great thing to do, wouldn't you have gone out and done it? Well, of course I would have, he replies. And they say, well, then, then do this simple thing. If you were willing to do something challenging, something difficult to be healed, then why not try something simple? So then Naaman goes... And he washes in the Jordan seven times. And then he is healed of his leprosy. And so then we are going to pick this up in, I think, verse 14 uh, of Second Kings chapter 5. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. Isn't that mission accomplished for the prophet? If the guy does follow through with what he told him to do, he washed in the Jordan seven times, and then now he's cleansed. And now he sends this message that, okay, now I know that the gods that everybody else has been worshiping, maybe that Naaman himself has been worshiping, are false gods. And he says, now I know 
My eyes have been opened. I see the power of the one true God and why you folks in Israel only worship one. And so he wants to do something nice. He wants to give a gift. You might say kind of like a gratuity. You know, he wanted to tip the prophet, you might say. And so he says, please accept a gift from your servant. He's putting himself, calling himself a servant, putting himself in that place of humility and saying, I'm willing to be, in your eyes, a servant and I want to give you a gift. Verse 16, the prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, the Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away and they left. When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to make money or to accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now, I remember all the times that I heard the story of Naaman and how he went off in a huff and how he criticized the Jordan River and said, we got better rivers back home. But it's interesting all the times that I heard that story or read that story, 
I never really went on to this part about Elisha's servant Gehazi. And so we have to assume that Gehazi was a good man. After all, he was the right hand, you might say, of Elisha. In the military, they have chaplains. Chaplains are not allowed to carry weapons. Most everybody in the military, doesn't matter what your MOS is what they call it, it doesn't matter what your job is going to be, they teach you how to use a weapon. When my brother went through Marine Corps boot camp in 1984, I think it was, I was in high school at the time, and he was 13 weeks, his boot camp on Paris Island, South Carolina. Well, his job in the Marine Corps was going to be to go to electronic school in Millington, Tennessee, at a naval air station there at the time. And he was going to go to school for about a year, and he was going to learn electronics. Specifically, the kind of electronics that they have in fighters. And so he was going to work in an area called Advanced Deceptive Countermeasures. And so he's working in the nose cones of FA-18 jets. But what did the Marine Corps do with him? They didn't just teach him electronics right away. They taught him how to run three miles or five miles, or they taught him how to do stuff with a you know, 40-pound pack on his back. They taught him how to fire a weapon from various positions, standing, sitting, lying down. And he had to go to the rifle range along with everyone else in his platoon. And then depending on how well you did, you got assigned a certain badge. Were you a marksman? Were you a sharpshooter? Were you an expert? I distinctly remember he qualified as an expert which I'm sure made Dad proud because in Dad's 22 years as a Marine, he never qualified anything less than expert. But if you're going to be a chaplain, they don't do that with you. You've been to college, you've been to seminary, and you are going to speak hope and peace and comfort into the lives of the men men and women of the United States military. But the last thing they feel like they should do, and I appreciate this, is give those chaplains a weapon. But what they do give them is a person instead of a weapon. They give them what's called a chaplain's assistant. It is an enlisted personnel, and that enlisted person has the weapon. And that enlisted person, it's their job that when, if they're somewhere with their assigned chaplain and the bullets start flying, they get in front of that chaplain. I gotta say, to me, that's amazing. If one of y'all want to be my person, you know? Right? If one of y'all want to be my person, you know, you carry the weapon. But then here's the, here's the kicker. It's your part, it's your job when the bullets start flying to put me down and to stand there and, and take the bullet. 
<laughs> that to me, that to me is kind of amazing. And so praise God that we have a military who finds value in chaplaincy. And praise God that they think enough of them that they assign people to them to help them. Now, that's not their only job. They're helping set up for services and, and other kinds of things. So they, they have a religious place in all of this as well. But that's Gehazi. Gehazi is that assistant to the prophet, as he's referred to here in 2 Kings, the man of God, Elisha. And so I have to think that Gehazi is a good person. But then sometimes people do things, right? That make you say, hmm, why did they do such a thing? Gehazi is in the room when Naaman shows up with Elisha and says, thanks, this is awesome. It's good to be free of the dread disease that I've been dealing with for so long. And then says, hey, take a little something from your servant. You know, if you would just, you know, I, you know take a, take, accept a gift. And Elisha's like, no. Because if I start accepting those generous kinds of gifts, then that skews everything. It changes the relationship. It changes what I do. It changes how it's perceived. You see, he did it so that Naaman, the Syrian, would see that the God of Israel is the true God. Mission accomplished. But then, if he starts taking stacks of cash for it, expensive gifts, that's where corruption seeps in, right? I think Elisha knows this. And he says, no, we don't want to open, we we don't want to give the devil a foothold here. We're not going to start down that road. And so he says, no. Now Gehazi, we don't know. Scripture, as often is the case, doesn't tell us what's going on between his ears. We don't know the motivation. We just know that for whatever reason, maybe things were tight at home. Maybe, maybe, maybe things are rough. And he's wanted a better standard of living for a while. We don't know. We just know that he takes it upon himself to run after Naaman. Boy, he might be thinking, if, if Elisha's not going to take the gift, I'll take the gift. No need, no need to let it go to waste. So he runs after him. And then it gets worse, though. Because he doesn't just say, I'll take the gift. He tells a lie, doesn't he? Yeah. There's deceit here. There's a lie. And then he comes back and Elisha knows he's been somewhere. And then he says, where you been? Oh, I didn't go anywhere. No, I just went outside for some fresh air. 
But no. He went. He got the gift. He came back. And now he's lying again. Because that's often what happens with deceit, right? There's a lie, and then there's another, and there's another. And pretty soon, it's hard to know sometimes where the truth ends and the lies start. And so, there's this preacher named Fred Craddock. Fred Craddock taught at a seminary in Atlanta and uh, preached in the mountains of northern Georgia. Died, I think, in 2015 in Blue Ridge, Georgia at the age of 86. Considered by many of us to be one of the greatest preachers, most influential preachers of the latter 20th century and early 21st century. Fred Craddock tells a story of being home one summer. And while he was home uh, working at a job at a factory in West Virginia, working alongside a black man, and he said, there we were, clocking in at the same time every day, clocking out at the same time every day. And he said, we were doing the exact same job. Our production level was exactly the same every day. And he said, but then one time I noticed we got our paychecks and I glanced and noticed that his was $15 less. Now $15 now may not sound like much. A lot of folks in here make more than that in an hour. But you go back several decades and that $15 went a long way for somebody in the course of a week. And so Fred Craddock looked over and said, you know, there's a problem. They've made a mistake. Your check is short by $15. And he says, let's go to the personnel office and let's talk to them about it. So the man said, okay. See, the man was illiterate. So Fred gets him up there in that personnel office and says, hey, we got a problem. There's a discrepancy. His check is short. I knew you all would want to rectify that mistake. And so one of the personnel managers then leans over to Fred Craddock and says, oh, we didn't know he could read. What does that tell us? That sometimes... People are willing to take advantage of somebody else if they just think they don't know any better. And we could ask the question, what would make someone do such a thing? In Luke chapter 3, John is preaching boldly along the banks of that same river where Naaman had washed seven times so many years earlier. And in Luke chapter 3, beginning with verse 7, we read that John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe 
is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they said, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. And so John, preaching boldly, has said, you know, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. If you have repented of your sins, you're a baptized believer, then keep fruit, bear fruit rather, that is in keeping with the life of someone who has repented. And the people start asking based on their own vocation. So what does that look like for us? And he warns the Jews. He said, don't be throwing out this son of Abraham stuff. He said, because that's not going to fly. God can raise up sons of Abraham out of these rocks over here. Your lineage is not what matters anymore. No. It's faith in Jesus Christ is where he's going with all this. But he's saying you need to repent and start living a life of repentance. And so yeah, the tax collectors. What's that look like like for us? Don't don't take any extra. The soldiers, what does that look like for us? Well, that means that you're content with the pay that you've got. Be grateful for that and don't extort people for more money. And then some of the commoners, what's that look like for us? Well, if you've got extra, give to somebody who doesn't have anything. Do it for your clothing. Do it with your food. If you've got a little extra, then then share it. What he's trying to say is be grateful for what you've got. If you're sitting here this morning, you might think this is a message about ethics, about right and wrong. But what this ultimately is, is a message encouraging us to be grateful for what we have. Because if we are people who are grateful, if we're people who are grateful, then we're not going to be people, most likely, that are going to be complaining. If we're people who are grateful, then we're not going to be people who are negative. If we're people who are grateful, then we're less likely to do the kinds of things that make other people scratch their head and say, now why would they do that? It's a church family. God encourages us to be thankful. Yes, we're to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And yes, when it comes to right and wrong, we're supposed to do the right thing and not the wrong thing. 
But it starts, the foundation of all that starts with us being grateful. Not people who are greedy. Not people who are always comparing themselves to others. We close today. Colossians 3.15 tells us, And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. And always be what, church? Thankful. That's right. May God help us all, myself included, to be thankful people. If you are with us today, I hope that you will feel compelled to respond to today's invitation, if it's for you today. That if you've not yet declared Christ as Lord and put on Christ in baptism, that you will do that today. But also, if there's something that's weighing on you and you would appreciate the prayers of this body, that you would just come forward and share with us what's weighing on you and we can pray with you about whatever that concern is. Let's stand together and sing.